What is up? Welcome back to Big Fat Five, a podcast financially supported by Big Fat Snare Drum. My name is Ben Hilsinger, and this week's guest is JP Bouvet. JP is a fabulous drummer and educator and winner of the 2011 Guitar Center Drum Off, which is how I first found out about him. He also has his own band called Childish Japes and has toured with artists like Steve Vai and Zach Wilde as a part of guitar supergroup Generation Axe. He also runs his educational drum website where he specializes in teaching improvisation. I am a happily subscribed student and I suggest you all do the same. And if you wanted to try out his website for free, which is jpbubaymethod.com, it's all linked in the show notes, he actually gives a cute little discount code during our chat, so keep your ears peeled. If you don't hear it, just email me and I'll send it over to you. It's worth it, trust me. But anyways, JP is clearly a great deliverer of information and his insight into approaching this instrument as a whole is invaluable. And so I know you'll enjoy this chat about the five records that helped shape J.P. Bouvet into the drummer he is today. Cheers. this list, what was your criteria for a record to be in the running and then ultimately make the top five? I was thinking mostly about things that changed my personal drumming trajectory. It's a, I will talk about what aspects of the music were influential, but I think I speak for most instrumentalists when they can point to certain moments in their history that were really sort of internally transformative some of these records i never listened to the other songs they'll be like just one like a song hit my radar uh changed my life and i became so obsessed with the song to the exclusion of the rest of the record and i may have never listened to that song again after like a year but the impact that some of these has not the case with all of these but the impact that some of these had on me personally you know i still um am often like the, the inspiration from a specific track is sort of running underneath the surface, not that far below the surface of, of what I'm playing. It might be sort of pseudo-consciously on my mind when I'm thinking about stuff still today. And some of these records are things like, you know, heard in high school and heard in, in college, which is, you know, we're talking 10 to 15 years ago at this point. Mm-hmm. 
All right, well, I usually say, even though I asked drummers to give a key track, listen to the whole record, but maybe for you, I'll be like, no, only listen to this song. Don't listen to anything else. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> So just let me know. But uh, what non-drummer has had the most impact on you as a player? Hmm. Yeah, I think I can name two. Okay. I'll and they'll it. kind of, they'll mesh in with, um, with some of the influences we talk about. One I would say is Ethan Iverson from The Bad Plus. So the Bad Plus is one of my favorite groups. We'll talk about one of their tracks as one of my big ones listed. Dave King is the drummer, but Ethan is really, to me, the primary definer of the band's sound. Mm. And musically, I'm in love with his playing, which is sort of what led me to Dave King to be so deeply inspired by him. But he does this incredible blend sort of constantly of consonance and dissonance and in time and out of time, but in a way where both ends of those continuums are are explored to more extreme ends. Right. So he, you know, they're sort of loosely in the in the genre of progressive jazz, you want to call it. But mm-hmm. the consonance will be so extreme as to be like a children's lullaby melody, like so ridiculously consonant, more consonant than you hear most people play. And the dissonance will be so aggressive, like he's going further beyond where most people go at both ends of the continuum and often really juxtaposing those things right next to each other. Same goes for his use of in time and out of time, often at the same time, right? So. One of the things I've always marveled at with him is one limb, one hand will be will be running arpeggios totally detached from the time, and the other will be playing very metronomically in time. And as a drummer, I can I can do that, but I've I've always thought to, to have ten fingers coordinating there just feels to me five times harder. But there's that too, and so those two things are sort of like general musical principles that I'm not necessarily always trying to channel, but very interested in. So an example, if we want to think about the dissonance and consonance thing at the same time, so you can have these like really weird harmonic things happening and a very simple melody, almost like childlike melody happening at the same time. A drumming version of that is to have the melody of your groove be extremely simple. Dum, dum. Right, just the most common groove ever, mm-hmm. <clears throat> and then have a second layer beneath that, where things are terribly disjointed and um, syncopated and just intentionally unsettling. You know, and you're trying to. You know, I've worked on that at various times in my life. But anyways, he's one. And then I would say another is Omar from the Mars Volta. And for him, I think it's just a certain type of manic energy. Just mm-hmm. like feels loosely tethered to sanity. And that was something much <laughs> more influential. Yeah. Much more influential earlier, I would say like my early twenties. Not so much channeling that now, but I'd say that's big, big energy in my life around those times. So anyways, yeah, it was a great question. Interesting. Great answer. My God. Um, (laughs) In what ways do you actively seek out sources of inspiration to keep your playing fresh? 
I mean, in addition to those those two players? Yeah, almost not at all. At the, for a long time, and mo I think this characterizes most of my life, but especially in recent years, I'm really not consuming a lot of drum-specific stuff. And there's, there's a part of me that feels a little bad when I have to give that answer, especially to students who are hopeful for like some cool stuff to check out. I've been, you know, I'm always going through phases musically, but I'm really usually just going through phases musically as a listener. And I'm many years deep into exploring certain ideas and concepts and ways of playing in my own drumming that I'm really not generally feeling like I have a lack of ideas. And if anything, there are already more things that I would like to get better at than I have time to work on. And some, many of those, like I said, are, are years-long quests. So obviously I, you know, I live in the world and I am a drummer. So I'm, I'm always you know, being exposed to drum ideas. But I would say really just at the most general level, am I regularly taking in inspiration in that way? Uh, to try to give a more concrete example, like recently, like Marcus Gilmore has been really interesting to me. You know, it's like, again, there's, there's like one YouTube video. And then I saw him at the Village Vanguard a couple months ago. And those are really just like the two snapshots that I carry with me in my head because I, I'm not, I know I'm not going to like transcribe what he's doing right now. I have sort of like, it's more like he's creating a really unique musical aesthetic. And if I, you know, if in moments, this isn't like a primary focus of my practice right now, but this is as an example, in moments where I want to try to be able to channel that aesthetic. The question is more like this is a two pronged question of like with the vocabulary I have, what can I do? And then what vocabulary could I develop that would help me do that better? Right. So, for example, like Marcus does some amazing, he has amazing freedom with just cross stick and right hand on the snare. He's just like super quick with the cross stick. He can just play like better rudimental drumming like that than I can even just like on the snare head. Again, I never really looked at any specific things he was doing, maybe besides like a couple of things that struck me as sort of obvious that could immediately be useful. But the question for me in the practice room is like, I would like to develop further vocabulary with that. So what can, where can I push myself? Honestly, that's kind of it. I have a weird, I'm in a weird moment right now. It's kind of, this has been this way for a few years, but I'm really kind of trying to avoid a lot of drum input, to be honest. Um, because, and I'm trying to avoid teacher input too. So I pretty consciously don't follow other drum educators. Like maybe you will have like t introduced this before, but I run an educational website and like I have some friends that run educational websites. And I really try to avoid knowing what other teachers are talking about for a few reasons. But I'm a little bit that way with drumming too, to be honest. It's just so easy to feel like you should be doing something other than what you're doing. And I feel like one of the things that characterizes this moment is just this totally asymmetrical battle against distraction. So I'm trying to distance myself as much as possible from that. Anyways. No, I love it. And to double down on what you said, jpbouvetmethod.com, I believe is the website. And yeah, the 
lately that the 16 invisible rhythms have been such a fun part of my practice routine and you going through that i think people should go to your website it's you're an amazing instructor and it's so fun to kind of go step by step with you and also i'll say that my ability to not bury the beater based off i've seen so many bass drum technique instructional you know youtube videos on how to not bury the beater but the way you describe it was one of the most approachable ways and it's really helped me so people definitely go check out your stuff it's really really good oh that means a lot thanks i mean if if you're if you're into it we could drop a promo code big fat five mm-hmm. that'd be a good one i love it use if you're listening use big fat five when you sign up and you'll get your first month totally free and you don't have there's no obligation you can just poke around see the kick agility course or the 16 invisible rhythms course that ben's talking about right now i'll shoot you an email we'll chat about your goals and stuff um but yeah thanks thanks for the plug that's great hell yeah well, let's just hop into your your big fat five. Speaking of the promo code, so the first one is the Chick Korea Electric Band. The artist is of course Chick Korea. Released here's 1986. Key tracks: Get a Match, King Cockroach, and of course the drummer is Dave Weckl. If people don't know, and take it away. Great, Got a Match. Um, Got a Match is uh, this. I don't remember where this came, like how this hit my radar, but it was really just the song, right? This is one of those albums. I have never, ever sat and listened to this whole album. Okay. And, and recurring theme, I'm really bad at being a fan of things. <laughs> Almost, you know, it's like I would be into some band's eighth album and like never go listen to the original stuff. And people hate that. But <laughs> I don't know. I've just, I don't, I don't have the bandwidth, I guess. But um, Got a Match, super formative for me. I feel like this was one of the first um, fusion jazz fusion tracks that I, I ever heard. Maybe my drum teacher showed it to me. I don't remember, but it was you definitely... you don't follow on Instagram. Right, exactly. <laughs> Who, uh, that uh, I think it was probably late high school. I got into jazz in high school and was, you know, playing in the high school jazz band and playing in a lot of big bands eventually by the time I left for college. Um, and then I had a fusion band with four friends. We were a quintet called the Penguins. And we played a bunch of stuff we thought was cool, Pat Metheny, some Dennis Chambers stuff, um, Freddie Hubbard. And I think at some point we did play Got a Match, but it's, as we will hear, it's, it's a challenging piece. But anyways, the thing that was super formative for me here um, that I can just always hear in my playing, even to this day, is the essentially what I now call a flow groove. And Dave Weckl was the first person I heard do this, which is when you are essentially improvising with your hands and feet as well in this case, right? So let's say I'm just like kind of improvising as a bass layer. And then I'm also kind of playing a groove over top of it. And you'll hear once we play this, this is like the primary thing that's going on here. And this was just a new way of drumming that I had never encountered, right? So when I was younger and I was playing, you know, my Red Hot Chili Peppers, sort of my lifetime favorite band, you know, Blink-182, playing along with Maroon 5 when their first album came out, like, you know, just a teenager learning whatever my drum teacher gave me, Prince. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, someone's just like keeping time on the hi-hat all the time. You have a certain set of rules you're following, keep time on one hand, 
play backbeats, play some ghost notes, and do some kick melodies. And this is a totally different way of playing where every limb is equally participating in the unfolding flow. And I think this was, you know, I wasn't thinking about the word flow at all in this point in my life, but this was my first, you know, big experience, first influence with something that it was flowing in this way. I almost put a second Dave Ruckel track in here, but I didn't. That's how influential he was on me in early days. Like I hear Dave in my, in my own playing all the time um, because of the, the fluidity that is natural to him that I'm always trying to capture, right? Never certainly to Dave Ruckel's level, but everything Dave plays is breathing. Like I always think of like the fills he would play around the toms. Oh, oh, oh. There was this pushing and pulling that just made it seem like the there was breath happening uh, on the drums. And I think that applies really well to this track as well. Right? There's this constant, I don't know what the right word is, but you know, it's this pushing and pulling dynamically that just feels so smooth and sort of disguises how complex what he's doing is, right? So what he's doing with different dynamics would sound really spastic and crazy, but because of the way he's able to mix his often snare and hi-hat and ride ghost notes, it sounds like there's just one thing happening instead. All right, well, here is uh, Gotta Match. Do you wanna just play from the beginning? It's great from the beginning, yeah. All right, here we go. Dynamic sensibility is just incredible. Like so much is happening, but it's so not distracting. I wanted to, <laughs> I can't say, I wanted to talk to you about a drum I've recently received from Preston at Vessel Drum Co. It's an ocean patinaed 14 by five and a half snare drum, and it's incredible. It's got a 1.5 millimeter shell, brass shell, with 10 lugs, chrome over brass, triple flange hoops, a trick uh, three position strainer, 42 strand wires. It's lovely. It's loud and it cuts and records as beautiful as a piece of butter cake. And, and Preston actually, this is why it's called the ocean patina, is he covers the shell with seaweed and then drops it in the ocean for a certain period of time. And then it patinas with all these crazy cool designs. And if you all remember 
Preston was actually one of the first guests on the podcast. When I first started out, I didn't really know what the Big Fat Five format was going to be or if it was going to be even Big Fat Five at all. But I went to his garage, his, his you know, where he makes all of his drums. It was really cool. He walked me through the episode is essentially from start to finish what happens with a drum. And it was, it was a really fun episode. It's now archived at BigFatSnareDrum.com just because it doesn't fit the format of Big Fat Five. I want you to get back to the show, but go check it out. This drum is beautiful, and he actually let me use it on an Eve 6 tour, and I didn't keep it, and I regretted it ever since then, just because I was trying to pinch pennies at the time, and I just kept thinking about it, and so the opportunity to get it again was presented, and it is one of my favorite drums. So the Ocean Patinaed 14 by 5.5 snare drum. Check it out. Reach out to me. Go to Vessel Drum Co., the Instagram's just at Vessel Drum Co. and check it out. It's amazing. It's beautiful. Sounds great. Bye. Number two, uh, not to move on from Dave, but uh, if there's anyone to move on from Dave to, it's Brian Blade. So it's uh, Perceptual is the record. The artist is Brian Blade and the Fellowship Band, released years 2000. He tracks Crooked Creek. And of course, like I said, Brian Blade. So take it away and then we'll listen to some, some Crooked Creek. Yeah. Brian Blade. So this is such a different operating system that Brian Blade is running than Dave Weckl, at least in Got a Match. What's remarkable about Dave's playing is in that track is that it's remarkably complex, but he makes it feel really good and musical and and human. Brian Blade, on the other hand, doesn't to me. I've never watched an interview. I don't know what he's thinking. But to me, it seems like he's completely uninterested in trying to do something complicated. Right? When I listen to this song, right? This song it was powerful for a couple of reasons. One of them was that there is not there's no lick that interests you. Right? There's no lick that I want to learn. There's no like pattern that strikes me and it's like a very long song. At no point is there a thing that I want to learn? But the entire time, it's extremely engaging. And the second thing that's powerful, which goes with the first, uh, and sort of, they sort of make each other more powerful, is that this was, at the time for me, the most powerful instrumental, emotionally powerful instrumental music that I was listening to. And I think in part it's because it's related to what I was saying is the first point that people are not interested in thinking technically for the sake of it, right? Their technical facility is, uh, exists, right? In service of this, this music and this feeling that they're trying to make and offer together. And I just, I mean, this is one of those songs where the nostalgia is so deep that like, whenever I listen to it, I'm just in such a, a, a sort of peaceful and an appreciative place. Because I used to listen to this song a lot. This would just be like my sort of meditative song as a younger, uh, as a young man, late teens, early 20s. And that's just very remarkable. So to me, this opened up, uh, it pushed the boundaries for what I understood instrumental music could do emotionally while maintaining like the sort of 
technical integrity of everything. Everyone's mm -hmm. playing extremely well, but it's not about what they're playing so much, you know? Mm -hmm. It's in 5-4, just for everyone listening. Okay. Well, there's another thing, because it's in 5-4, and that is just just inconsequential, right? It, 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 it's not in 5-4 because that's fancy. Mm -hmm. It just is what this song needs to like feel the way it does. Okay, go for it. That was a good moment. That was a good moment. That was actually the, the perfect clip. That was a good guess. Because <laughs> um, you hear so many different things. You hear the band is so comfortable in this time signature. I mean, that guitar line, all these upbeats just sort of like coasting over the 5-4 is such a, I don't know, just a creative comping move, right? This is a background part. And then the other thing that's so interesting about this record is the instrumentation. You have for, I think, all of it. Uh, you have two guitars, and one I believe. Again, terrible fan. You know, people are going to correct me <laughs> all over the place if I'm wrong here. Well, one of them is often fretless and is probably Dave Fusinski. I don't know, but um, and then two saxes, if I'm not mistaken, as well. So the instrumentation gives the opportunity, and there's piano, if I'm not mistaken. I think so. There's two. Yeah. So two guitars and piano. It's just like the ability to make so much lush texture. But as any piano player and guitar player knows, right, playing with just one other is you have to be very careful about what you have to be more thoughtful about what you're playing because you can step on each other's toes a lot. Mm -hmm. So to have three of them playing is uh, a you know everyone has to be really listening hard, which they obviously are in this record, and they have to be. Um, just like very intentional about the parts. And I think it actually ends up giving more improvisational structure to what's going on because people find little lines that they can repeat. People find a, a range that they can sit in. And it ends up actually feeling more planned, even if it's not, um, because you're not just like, comping with all of the tools you could possibly use just so special right and you can hear him playing there again this for me pushed um me away from 
what am I playing toward how am I using what I'm playing to serve the song, right? We chose one of the highest energy moments, but a lot of, a lot of this very uh, long song and a lot of this album is really low key. And no one is interested in like, oh, I'm gonna put a cool lick here. Like, no, no, no. It's just not the operating system that the band is running. And it's really, it's really powerful to hear that. And a mm -hmm. really great juxtaposition next to like Chick and Dave, who are also making like music with feeling, but it's just a totally different place to be coming from. Mm -hmm. All right, let's move on to number three. The album is Flood. The artist is Herbie Hancock. The release here is 1975. Key track is Actual Proof. And the drummer who's not talked about maybe one other time on this podcast, but it's Mike Clark. So take it away. Yeah, not talked about enough in general, I feel like. But this record kind of just has a simple influence on me is that like Mike's way of playing these super tight grooves. And it's interesting because there's similarities and differences between with, with Dave. Not so much Brian. There's a bit more distance between them. But he is just like this boom. Boom, right? Especially on hi-hat grooves. This, like I mentioned, the flow grooves idea earlier where you're improvising and you're playing a groove, right? In Dave with Gotta Match, that comes in and out. But then he also, you know, hops back into pretty, you know, jazz comping on the ride and stuff. Here, uh, we're pretty committed to grooving. And everything about Mike's playing and sound on this to me, just like register as a moment where I was like, oh, I've just been introduced to like a new color on the palette, a new thing musically. And I feel like it's something I'm still using almost all the time. And sort of the, the flashback I have when I think about it is this record and a couple other Herbie records where Mike's basically doing this. Mm -hmm. But this one's a little simpler in the sense that it just introduced me to this. Just imitating this style of drumming is something everyone's always doing. And this was my introduction to it. And, and still, I feel like this is just like the quintessential version of it. Perfect. Actual proof live in Tokyo. Here we go. Yeah, and if you listen to the hi-hat, that's where you can really hear the hands working together, you know, inserting all sorts of doubles, paradiddles, groups of three, inverted doubles and stuff around the groove. And the other thing I thought was so impressive about this record, which I still think is so impressive because it's the thing I find hardest about the drum still, is how free they are within the form, right? It's a weird form. This is bar 5-4, bar 3-4, there's weird stuff going on. But 
this is, you know, you'd never guess that they're thinking very hard about it. It seems like super ingrained. Um, I've, you know, I've played this song numerous times. It's been many years, but it made me appreciate even more as I was playing it, how easy they seemed to be plugged into the form. It's like the, the goal with that is to no longer be thinking about it at all and just sort of be operating according to the form because you know it well enough. Mm-hmm. That's, you know, following and soloing over uh, forms has always been probably my most persistent struggle on the drums. So things like this did back then and still do, you know, really impress me. Yeah. All right. Number four. Number four, the album's Prague. The artist is, (laughs) that's a sick name for a record. The artist is The Bad Plus. We already kind of talked about Dave and I believe it's Ethan. Released here's 2007. Key tracks, thrift store, jewelry, physical cities. And yes, the drummer is Dave King. So take it away and then we'll listen to uh, a track. Yeah, unlike the three guys we talked about so far, Dave is a radical departure. Uh, and Dave introduced me to choosing to, to be out of time in time. Right? There's, a, there's a recklessness with the time, not accidental, right? It's very intentional. But you'll find like his time in the, in the big sense, if you're thinking quarter notes and, and measures, is rock solid. But he will play with the placement of notes within that. And he will play with the dynamics in a way at the same time that really makes it feel like you are just sort of at times hanging on for dear life. And there are tracks where it's like, you know, super on the grid, none of what I'm talking about. But as you'll hear in in Thrift Store Jewelry, it's just loose, you know, just loose. (laughs) But it grooves. And it was basically like, if you think about what we've listened to so far as sort of formative of my early drumming life, this, I would say, is a primary track for my uh, current drumming life. So when I am playing gigs around New York now, I'm, I'm much more often thinking about this aesthetic that Dave King creates as opposed to Dave Weckl. Well, Brian Blade, I'm still thinking about a good bit because that's kind of the music I'm in. But this is this just takes the possible timing options and just pushes them further, you know? And that's why he goes so I mean, dude, Bad Plus is just like sort of a miracle trio in my opinion. Like what I described about Ethan Iverson and Dave King, the fact that they found each other is really just like meant to be. And Reed Anderson on the bass is the perfect compliment. But anyways, yeah, play this track and you'll hear what I'm talking about.
brakes. Yeah. We can't do There's no way to transcribe that in any sensible way. And what I love mm. so much about Dave's playing is, uh, as I'm sure you know, and people, if you're listening and don't know, his personality is is so intertwined into the way he plays as well. He's one of the funniest, confident people I've ever seen. Yeah, totally. Like going for it, going for it. You know what I mean? Like going for the joke, like the bit. Yeah. But like his music, let me make sure this doesn't come out in the wrong way. Like there's the same spirit of going for a bit, but not in the sense that you're joking about anything and dead serious, right? But like you're going for the thing and, and you're not at all questioning whether or not it is in a joke's case funny or in music's case excellent or whatever it might be there's just you know this pushes the boundary further than the guys we've listened to so far about like the possible freedom around the kit right and this song when you hear that like there's like a couple moments where there are like these very short drum breaks it's just like like it's just kind of a little totally untranscribable drum spasm right it's a spasm and, yeah yeah and even the uh, like a controlled spasm and even the like at the end of the form it's like down down right he says this like the bump is like totally rushed right it, it doesn't matter like none of it matters in that way and if it was perfect it would lose everything special about the thing you know what i mean so it's an interesting evolution to think about mike clark to Dave, um, I feel like Dave's probably, well, I don't know Dave's influences <clears throat> at all, but like, Mike's like super metronomic. That's what makes it like um, the whole time. And Dave is not, that's not the MO whatsoever. If you listen to the song Physical Cities, which we don't necessarily have to do now on that album, it's very super in time because right? none of what i'm talking about right now but what dave introduced me to through the bad plus was the the further possibilities of just placement in and around time and the thing i'm often thinking about with this is you know in time out of time i'm playing in time out of time meaning that the big time is in time and the smaller subdivisions are malleable and it's mm -hmm. really important to note for anyone interested in this that you're not thinking about just like more technically complex subdivisions. Right? You're not going like, and now a septuplet will do just the thing. No, you're just, you're just cramming notes in here and there. Uh, and Marcus Gilmore does an amazing job of doing this too. I don't know how he thinks about it, but there are so many moments. I was sitting seven feet from his drum set when I saw him at Village Vanguard. There are so many moments when like it's definitely not three, four, or six, or eight notes happening within quarter notes and eighth notes, obviously intentionally, uh, and to incredible effect, because we are so programmed with those sort of standard subdivisions, for good reason, that when someone can really play freely with others, just the category of other in there, there's just something magical about it, because we just don't have, the, the average listener, myself included, doesn't have the ability to understand in the moment, mm -hmm. even at a, you know, sort of like a subconscious rhythmic level of like, yes, okay, this is a time I recognize, right? There's a kind of push and pull that is unfamiliar 
and that's where you kind of get that rub with something really special with music where you're like, wow, I, I don't understand and it's beautiful. Yeah. Notation's just like a standardized way to communicate with other musicians, but you shouldn't feel that's not a box you have to stay in. So a hundred percent. It's very approximate. It's a, a very approximate representation in the same way that a word tree is an almost meaningless representation of the infinite number of trees it could represent. Same goes for playing, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, when you were saying nothing matters, I literally imagined Dave just looking at the camera going, nothing matters. And you're like, oh yeah, you're <laughs> yeah. right. Um, yeah. All right, well, let's go to number five. The album is uh, I Have the Room Above Her. The artists are Bill Frizzell, Joe Lovano, and Paul Motion. And release the release here is 2004, key tracks Osmosis Part 1. But uh, yeah, take it away. Let's talk about Bill Frizzell and, and all that jazz. All that jazz. Yeah, so this, honestly, Paul hit my radar. I was trying to, in, in putting these in, I tried to put these in chronological order. Mm -hmm. So Paul really only hit my radar in any serious way last two years. And part of my personal musical evolution and my preferences has just very clearly moved more decisively toward improvised music and toward, you know, the all encompassing term of jazz. And perhaps that's just me using, losing my youthful energy and therefore my interest whatsoever in being in like a punk band or anything of that sort, you know, <laughs> I don't know. Yeah. I'm just tired already, but, um, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but so the, the other trend that we're loosely tracing with these ones is this sort of ever-growing freedom or the possibilities of what is allowed, what is on the palette as a drummer. And honestly, my, I started playing with a friend, well, a now friend, uh, an acquaintance at the time, Greg Lapine, who's a friend of a friend. And he introduced me, he was writing, you know, I basically was like, hey, I just graduated college. I went back to school for three years and graduated in 2022. You know, but I came back out of that and four years had suddenly passed, basically. We also had a child at the end of that. So I was a very different person, interested in different things, having gone through a very transformative several years in every way, really, intellectually, spiritually, socially, with my family in all ways. I just came out the other side like really blank canvas musically. I was like, I want, I know that what I care about most is being involved in music that is just the purest outlet for me to explore musically as free as possible without losing the musical integrity for the listener, right? So I can't, there's a lot of free jazz that I just struggle with. Um, and, and performing free jazz too freely just feels too self-serving. I've always felt, and I tell my students this with drum solos all the time, that taking your audience into consideration is part of the art, right? Because it's, it's a journey you're, you're meant to go on together, and you're the guide. So you, if you just leave people behind, that's not fun for them, and it really shouldn't be fun for you, <laughs> sort of abdicating your responsibility as a person who is in a rare position to control music in a way that could be impactful, you're not, 
So you have a little bit of a responsibility, but that's a, you have a very wide berth, right? You could do almost anything. So anyways, the trajectory has been like much more toward trying to create opportunities to play as freely as possible. And Greg came along and had just moved back to the city. Anyways, we linked up. I was trying to play more improvised music. He was trying to get a band together. And he introduced me to a bunch of great stuff. And I was like, where has this music been all my life? I would have loved this the whole time. <laughs> this is like my shit. Mm -hmm. And it's just like Bill, I mean, Bill, everything Bill Frizzell touches is sort of gold. He's just a special guy. Um, and he captures a lot of what I'm saying, I feel like, musically, where, I mean, I've seen him play. And I've listened to a lot of a lot of records. He's on so many records. But um, he will go anywhere. And he is obviously exploring, you know, what what is the contents of his vocabulary extremely freely. But it's never, it's never obnoxious. It's never self-serving. Like, it's always listenable. It's always really cool. And Paul, as you'll hear in this track, was the first time I heard a drummer really not follow any of the drum rules that I thought were all required. So he becomes more of a texture in this recording. And he's not playing in time, but he's able to do it very uniquely. Him and John Christensen, another favorite, able to do it in a way that like, I want to listen, which is so hard to do. Right mm -hmm. to to play out of time, and it not suck, is is something you can only do if you've become just a master of playing in time very sensitively. And right, obviously, like Paul Motion's famous for you know his his work with like the Bill Evans Trio, just really like kind of straight ahead stuff, and it's really inspiring, and and it makes a lot of sense I think to me to see such a master later in life arrive at this point of like textural sensitivity that again if we were if we were talking about like brian blade not being concerned about like quote unquote licks and then kind of the same for dave king like expanding the freedom of time like this is just like jumping off the deep end of whatever that trajectory is and just using your 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 instrument as a, a series of of colors to contribute Hell yeah. Well, here's Osmosis Part 1. sound
If people do want to find out more about you and maybe what you're doing on the East Coast, give a little bit of a, a platform for you to do some self-promotion and then I will let you go. But this has been so fun. It's been a blast and I'm in no rush. So the my website is jpbuvetmethod.com. I specialize in teaching improvisation um, with step-by-step -step methods that work. You know, hundreds of drummers that weren't sure if it was possible to learn improvisation are finding their freedom on the drums. As um, this podcast has made clear, finding greater freedom in improvisation is really all I care about on the drums. That's, to me, the entire point of the tens of thousands of hours of practice to be able to feel that feeling like you are channeling something beyond you, to open the faucet and, and watch what comes out and actually like the sound, that's worth developing. And it's, it's not a mystical thing you either have or you don't. There just aren't a lot of methods for doing it. And uh, my students and I on the site have, have found some that really work. So if you're interested in any of that, again, the, uh, what do we say, Big Fat Five. Big fat One five. word, big fat five, F-I-V-E, spell it out. Every course on the website essentially builds improvisational freedom with the topic at hand, whether it's mm -hmm. ghost notes, flow grooves, like we talked about, like the type of thing Mike Clark is doing on that, bunch of fill and solo vocabulary, um, again, that uh, initially inspired by, by Dave Weckl's way of fluid playing. Anyways, that's all there. I live in New York. Uh, I'm trying to play around and, and play little improv gigs with musicians I really like. So catch a show if you're out here. And then my band is called Childish Japes. And we do a huge variety of stuff. Some of it's improv based, some of it's not at all. We have a new album out called Matters of Life and Death, part one, with a singer named Joanna Teeters, who's fantastic. But yeah, you know, Instagram, you can find me. That's the main stuff. <laughs> okay. And yeah, going back to the your your method, you do break it down. You don't just say, here's this lick that you're never going to use again. You, in fact, even say, like, don't just use this and then try and get a, you know, get rich quick scheme. You do show how it's applicable and how you really need to spend some time and patience and you're very realistic about it. But then you also show great examples. So no, I am a huge fan. I'm not just blowing smoke up your ass. I've tried a lot of online websites. I am I'm sticking with yours for, for a long time. So uh, thanks again for all you do, man. I'm, I'm stoked to have you on the show. I really appreciate it. Thanks a lot, Ben. All right, today's big fat favorite is from Benjamin, <laughs> Michael Benjamin Lerner. Um, sorry, I'm a little conceited there. And he's from the band Telekinesis. He's a songwriter, singer, plays drum. He's everything in the band. So the album, or one of the albums he chose, is Lola versus Power Man and the Money Ground Part 1. The artist is The Kinks. The release here is 1970. Key track is Strangers. And the drummer is Mick Avery. So here's what Michael had to say. Let me get this out of the way on the onset. Mick Avery is a highly underrated drummer. He doesn't get put in the pantheon of the Ringos, the Moons, or the Bonhams, but he deserves to be in that conversation. The Kinks themselves sort of fall into that category as a band. They were always the misfits of all the aforementioned peers at their time, but there are days when I feel like they were the best band on earth. This song, in particular, is one that I adore tremendously. While I'm a student of the drums, I am also a student of recording, and I often find myself returning to this song to remind myself that it's very easy to go down the rabbit hole of thinking you need a million dollars in equipment, top-of-the-line drums, etc. 
And when I feel myself starting to go down that rabbit hole, I'll put on the song and listen to the end where the toms have their moment. And you can literally hear how badly tuned they are, or probably what's most likely how old the drum heads are. And I adore that they didn't fix it or spend hours or money on getting new heads or redoing the take because the drums were making that bow wow 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 noise. They were all seem <laughs> that we all seem to despise. Because ultimately this song is unfuckwithable and you couldn't ruin it even if you tried. Alright, here is Strangers by the Kinks. the show if you're listening on a platform that allows ratings and reviews do that it helps more people find the show so it'll get bigger and better and hopefully i'll have a chance to sell out one day but you'll be an og listener that can brag to all your friends anyways why don't you go and check us out at bigfatsnaredrum.com and follow us on all the socials just search for big fat snare drum and you will find us the show is edited in part using isotope rx audio editor it's amazing so go check that out at isotope.com and thanks again to Gunnar Olsen for the theme music. Bye.